Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. And welcome everyone to our first TMC seminar of the fall 2021 semester. Uh, I'm Warren Kinghorn. I'm uh, a co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. And on behalf of my co-director, Far Curlin, and our whole TMC team and all of our students, we really welcome you uh, to this seminar today. Uh, we, uh, the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative exists to connect the world of healthcare and the world of Christian faith and practice. And it's beyond wonderful to see so many, both current students alumni, friends, colleagues at other institutions, and perhaps some who are just checking out our work for the first time uh, today. And we're really excited to see this group gathered over Zoom. Uh, I would say that if you, uh, we do have our cameras on today. Uh, if you want to be able to see Dr. Smith and not everyone else uh, when he's presenting, it's best to use the speaker view function on Zoom. And you can then uh, focus in on his face and not on mine or anyone else's uh, during the course of his presentation. Um, it's really a privilege for our first seminar speaker of the year to be one of our own uh, TMC and Duke Divinity faculty, Dr. Patrick Smith. Uh, Dr. Smith is Associate Research Professor of Theological Ethics and Bioethics and Senior Fellow at the Keenan Institute of Ethics here at Duke University. Uh, Dr. Smith has a bachelor's degree from Auburn University and MDiv from Trinity International University and an MA and PhD in philosophy from Wayne State University. Uh, he was named a 2016-2017 Henry Luce III Fellow in Theology, was recipient of the 2019 Paul Ramsey Award for Excellence in Bioethics. Uh, along with his work at Duke Divinity School, he's the Director of Bioethics for the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and the History of Medicine, and Associate Professor in Population Health Sciences in the Department of Population Health Sciences in, in Duke University School of Medicine. Uh, he's been active nationally in organizations such as the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, and currently is on their board of directors. And his current areas of research and writing are in the areas of moral philosophy, bioethics, theological ethics, end-of-life care, and the religious and social ethics of Martin, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, Professor Smith, uh, uh, before uh, joining the Duke Divinity faculty, was a lecturer at Harvard Medical School in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine, was on the core faculty for the Master of Bioethics program offered through Harvard Center for Bioethics, as well as on faculty at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's been involved in many other both academic and nonprofit uh, work over the course of his career, uh, but to allow time for him to present and to be able to tell his story and to present of his current work, just want to express gratitude, uh, Dr. Smith, for your being with us and being at our inaugural um, TNC seminar speaker. Uh, and Dr. Smith will be speaking us, to us today on the topic Pursuing Shalom in an Age of COVID-19, Some Theological Considerations. 
Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kinghorn, for that uh, very lovely uh, and warm introduction. Uh, also, I'm very honored uh, to be the, the lead speaker, uh, at least for the, the series this uh, fall semester. Uh, I'm beginning to question your wisdom of uh, starting off with me on this, but I'm deeply grateful uh, to be here uh, nevertheless. So I do want to share uh, just some thoughts, uh, some broad thoughts, uh, admittedly in terms of pursuing shalom in an age of COVID-19, some uh, just broad theological considerations. And uh, here we'll be taking a little bit of a, a, um, a high view of, of looking at these issues here. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has been disastrous for many people all over the world. What does it look like for Christians to be good neighbors, loving neighbors, considering the negative impact of the COVID-19 pandemic? The Black church tradition and other traditions in Christian um, um, history have emphasized in its ministry both priestly and prophetic functions of its work. In its priestly function, Christian tradition provides resources to help God's people cope with the ravages of something like a, a pandemic when it hits. This includes coming to terms with and faithfully preparing for death. Uh, so the work of our colleagues, um, Richard Payne, uh, Stanley Harawas, Lydia Dugdale, uh, Far Curlin, many, many others as well uh, have written about this and thought about this. Uh, moreover, it includes resources, for example, to address the challenges relating to pandemic stress uh, and other questions of mental health. So uh, Dr. Kinghorn's work has uh, figured prominently in some of these discussions. Additionally, Christian tradition has a prophetic function it is a call for the people of God and all their earthly vulnerabilities to bear witness to the reality of the inauguration of the reign of God that has come in Jesus. This includes a notion of biblical justice that is to inform our understanding of social justice. The COVID-19 pandemic has made longstanding, seemingly intractable inequities painfully visible and so for many of us in this space, the challenges resulting from pandemics are not merely ones of public health, but are simultaneously matters of Christian social justice. Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert of Howard University Divinity School highlights an additional dimension to the priestly and prophetic functions. He makes explicit what also has been deeply embedded in these other two aspects of the church's ministry, namely the sagely function of the church. This function of the church is a shared ability to discern appropriate ways of pursuing and implementing order in every area of life. I suggest that these interconnected dimensions are to be deeply embedded in the pursuit of shalom, at least for those who lean into Christian tradition. Uh, in the time that I have this afternoon, I just want to share some general themes and observations that I hope can spur conversation and spark our moral imagination in our pursuit of shalom, justice in the age of COVID-19. Uh, this session highlights three shades of meaning with respect to the notion of shalom as found in biblical tradition and how they um, are to be linked in practice. I also want to connect the notion of shalom with social justice. Then I want to close by briefly noting without expanding in any detail, a few uh, takeaways for those working in healthcare who lean into Christian tradition. <clears throat> the word shalom, is sometimes translated as peace. While this translation is not inaccurate, the understanding of what is entailed by biblical peace is often misunderstood. The Hebrew term shalom has, uh, shalom has a much more in-depth and rich meaning. The idea should not be equated in a reductionistic way merely with physical nonviolence. 
though most certainly the notion includes it. The contrast should primarily be understood between shalom and injustice. This meaning is sometimes lost unless one surveys the many passages found in the biblical texts to see how it is used and the kinds of states of affairs uh, to which it points. Uh, in this session, we will not be doing a lot of the exegetical work, but just want to summarize uh, some of these ideas for us here. So three shades of meaning to this idea of shalom. The first shade of meaning is in the idea of material well-being and prosperity. It refers to a physical and material state of affairs, the flourishing and well-being of God's good creation, all of creation. Uh, it is the most frequent usage uh, of God's shalom. It highlights the interconnectivity, dependency, interdependency, and finitude uh, of all of creation. And so in many respects, I think this idea of shalom just follows or flows from uh, a robust uh, theology of uh, creation with its uh, interconnectivity, dependency, interdependency, and finitude of every aspect of God's good creation. Shalom is primarily a positive idea. It's an idea, as Perry Yoder would say, as being for something. Peacemaking is that grace-empowered human pursuit of shalom, making uh, us uh, of shalom, making sure that those who do not now enjoy material shalom and physical well-being can do so. Now, it's very important to point out that the idea of prosperity here is not to be conflated with some ways of thinking about a prosperity gospel, say, where um, uh, the pursuit of a flourishing life is just uh, material wealth for its own sake, but just a general sense of well-being for people to go beyond subsistence uh, to be able to flourish in a secondary sense, this side of uh, the full consummation of what God is doing uh, in the world. <clears throat> Then there's this relational shade, uh, this second shade, uh, is in its reference to good relationships between groups uh, with one another, with the non-human animal world and with the larger environment. It can also refer to interpersonal relationships between individuals or within a group of individuals, specifically the absence of oppression and right relatedness between people is often a signal of shalom within a society. And so shalom making is working for just and health giving relationships between people and nations. And then lastly here, this moral dimension, this last shade of meaning is the presence of a personal integrity and straightforwardness. Uh, these are also indicative of shalom with respect to our individual lives. Shalom making is working to remove deceit and hypocrisy and to promote honesty, integrity, decency, and straightforwardness. <clears throat> now, Shalom defines how things should be in the material, relational, and ethical in an ethical sense. However, it cannot be reduced to one of these aspects alone. Rather, the three components must be held together to understand and pursue Shalom. The three aspects of Shalom are to be realized in embodied practices. An example of the embodied practice of shalom is evidenced in the prophets when we read uh, those various texts. The true prophets condemned social injustice and oppression. The prophets condemned the people of God due to the inability to realize shalom in their midst while they claimed to worship Yahweh. 
there's this material uh, notion where we see uh, injustice, where economic flourishing and involuntary poverty coexist in some of these spaces. Uh, relationally speaking, the rich and powerful oftentimes oppress the poor. The economic benefit from this gave the outward appearance of prosperity. However, it was not a true vision of Shalom, uh, Amos chapter three, for example. Uh, and this moral dimension, the political process was not working with honesty uh, as unjust laws were in place and uh, people were engaging in political exploitation for financial and other types of gain. Shalom then in biblical tradition is a way that things ought to be in contrast, those opening chapters of Isaiah, uh, especially chapter two uh, in particular here. <clears throat> Now, what I want to do uh, now is actually share uh, a quote with you uh, from, <clears throat> sorry, um, a quote with you from um, Karl Barth. Uh, those who know me uh, and know the, the influences that have been on my life would not charge me with being a Barthian uh, in any sense of the term, but I do appreciate uh, uh, its uh, theological influence in many respects, and also this section that comes from the Church Dogmatics, uh, Volume 3. Uh, four. And uh, it's just an extended passage, but I want you to just hear and listen to what uh, Bart is saying here, because I think uh, this paragraph in particular with other uh, thinkers and theologians uh, and theological ethicists really encapsul encapsulates what it is that I want to highlight with this idea of shalom and this multifaceted nature of shalom <clears throat> in the context of a flourishing life uh, this side of a full consummation. Bart writes, finally, we have to remember that when seriously posed, the whole question of measures to be adapted for the protection or recovery of the freedom of vital functions necessarily goes beyond the answers given by each of us individually. The basic question of the power to be as human and therefore of the will for this power and therefore for real health and the associated question of its expression and exercise are questions which are not merely to be raised and answered individually, but in concert. They are social questions. Hygiene, sport, and medicine arrive too late and cannot be more than rather feeble palliatives if such general conditions as wages, standards of living, working hours, necessary breaks, and above all, housing are so ordered, or rather disordered, that instead of counteracting, they promote and perhaps even cause illness and therefore the external impairing of the will for life and health. Respect for life in the form in which we now particularly envisage it necessarily includes responsibility for the standard of living conditions generally and particularly so for those to whom they do not constitute a personal problem because they personally need not suffer or fear any threat from this angle being able to enjoy at least the possibility of health and to take measures for its protection or recovery in view of their income, food, working hours, rest and wider interest. The principle of healthy mind in a healthy body uh, can be so highly short-sighted and, uh, and a brutal one if it is only understood individually and not in the wider sense of a healthy mind and a healthy society. So I think Bard nicely gets this idea of shalom uh, <clears throat> in this wider multifaceted sense, and that health and human flourishing uh, 
certainly requires a holistic approach. And we think about the ravages of something like COVID-19 that has exacerbated the way our social realities are, uh, believe that those words uh, have particular focus uh, in our current moment. <clears throat> Shalom justice as social justice here. Uh, for Christians, I want to add, uh, this is deeply informed by the gospel of Jesus. In the redemptive work of what God was doing in Christ, in the restoring of broken relationships of all aspects of God's good creation, uh, not just individual personal relationships uh, with God, we see a comprehensive notion of, of, kind of reconciliation. Shalom makers thus should strive for comprehensive understanding of reconciliation. Therefore, the pursuit of shalom in biblical tradition requires the pursuit of social justice. Uh, broadly speaking, social justice entails the exercise of legitimate power to ensure that benefits and penalties are distributed fairly and equitably in society, thus meeting the rights and enforcing the obligations of all parties, uh, to quote Christopher Marshall. Uh, it should be clear from this broad description of social justice that our understanding of it is necessarily going to be contextual, particular, and historical in character. Thus, the content of social justice is not derived on the basis of some type of isolated human speculation or the autonomous use of human reason. Tradition-specific understandings of social justice are unavoidably conditioned by the way of looking at life and the world which we received from the particular historical and religious traditions to which we belong. Hence, a Christian understanding of social justice is to be informed and shaped by biblical and theological resources, I would claim. Uh, in Christian tradition, justice is amongst the chief attributes of God. Uh, biblical tradition also features the notion of justice in divine action in the world more than is sometimes thought given that it is derived from the same semantic field as the words righteousness and judgment. Hence, the Christian understanding of justice is informed by the wealth of resources that discloses the works of God in both word and action. Uh, in short order, I advance uh, four theological considerations in thinking about the nature of, of shalom justice that informs a Christian approach to social justice. First, there is a sense in which Shalom justice is creative. Uh, it has the moral vision and spiritual resources for us to reimagine our collective life together. Creative justice focuses on the generating of transformed ways of relating to one another and to the environment towards a more theological vision in this direction of shalom. Christian tradition is not supposed to advocate a system where groups or of uh, individuals are denied uh, equal participation in society. As a result, biblical writers promote a justice that is activity on behalf of the disadvantaged. Second, pursuing shalom justice is a necessary instrument of love and a respect for life. Or some uh, are fond of saying, uh, like Cornel West, justice is just what love looks like in public following in the tradition of somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. In view of the widespread tendency to restrict the concern of Christian ethics to personal relationships and thereby dispense with the demand for justice as part of Christian ethics, Clayton Gardner reminds us that it is essential that the positive relationship between justice and love be tightly held together. As Martin Luther King said, 
love that does not satisfy justice is no love at all. Love at its best is justice concretized. Neighbor love in the New Testament means meeting the needs of others who are affected by what we do or leave undone. So our neighbors may be encountered both as an individual and as a member of various institutions by others who are also related to them, both directly as individuals, but also indirectly through institutions. So in all of these relationships, our neighbor's welfare and dignity are at stake in how we treat uh, them and arrange our social and institutional life. Social justice as an expression of love or shalom justice as an expression of social justice and as an expression of love seeks the welfare of all persons in community. It aims directly at the good of the group and indirectly at the good of each person in the group. And since most of our relationships with our neighbors are necessarily indirect, Clinton Gardner also says the most effective way of ministering to their total welfare is through the pursuit of social justice. Third here, shalom justice also is characterized by what some would call a principle of redress. And this postulates that inequalities in the conditions necessary to achieve the standard of well-being be corrected to approximate equality. Of course, one must tread very carefully on this point, uh, given the complexities of the concept of equality in political philosophy. Uh, too easily, this sort of language and questions about redress can lead to misunderstandings and stereotyped ideological assumptions. Uh, it is not being suggested that approximate equality means uh, a mathematical division of all property and power or a leveling of all social goods. The priority or emphasis is that the basic needs for human flourishing or well-being of every member of the community be met before vast amounts of wealth be accumulated for a few. Uh, Christian ethicist Stephen Mott has emphasized that this sort of justice requires special attention. Uh, that special attention is given to the weak so that they can realize along with all other members, the minimum requirements of participation in the community. The goal is to enable people to have the capacity to earn a living and to have a reasonable chance of flourishing. Uh, Leviticus 25, Ezekiel 47, Micah chapter two. Uh, furthermore, the goal is not merely for people to have basic subsistence. Shalom justice also entails the idea that there needs to be adequate control of some resources to be able to meet those needs, such as uh, possession of land, due process, independence from subjugation, and participation in legal decisions, etc. Now, in the case of racial justice, this uh, becomes, for some, controversial, uh, but no less important. Uh, Martin Luther King, uh, in his book, Where Do We Go From Here, writes these words. He says, the white liberal must affirm that absolute justice for African-Americans simply means, in the Aristotelian sense, that African-Americans must have their due. There is nothing abstract about this. It is, a it is as concrete as having a good job, good education, a decent house, and a share of power. It is, however, important to understand that giving a person her or his due may often mean giving them special treatment. I am aware of the fact that this has been a troublesome concept for many uh, since it conflicts with their traditional ideal of equal opportunity and equal treatment of people according to their individual merits. 
but this is a day which demands new thinking and reevaluation of old concepts. A society that has done something special against African-Americans for hundreds of years must now do something special for them in order to equip them to compete on a just and equal basis. This is another one of those examples of a principle of redress with regard to questions of racial justice uh, and this notion of shalom justice, uh, this vision of the way we do life together, uh, repairing broken relationships uh, become extremely uh, important for us to consider and to wrestle with as we think about pursuing shalom in an age of COVID-19 where many of these inequities and inequalities uh, have been highlighted in stark relief for us. And lastly here, according to some forms of Christian tradition, the incarnation of Jesus is the epitome of the divine disclosure of justice in the world. The revelation of God in the incarnation of Jesus deeply informs the moral vision of social justice in an unavoidably contextual, historical, particular, and embodied manner. Christopher Marshall fleshes this idea out, um, well, I guess pun intended, I suppose, uh, in the following way. Uh, Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God, he writes, impinged directly on the major dimensions of social uh, and political life. The use of wealth and power, the exclusion of the weak and disadvantaged from full participation in community, and the use of lethal violence to protect the unjust as quo. Jesus was critical of the injustices of the prevailing social order and called for communal repentance. He also laid down a new ethic for his followers. In his community, the weak are to be honored, wealth is to be justly distributed, leadership is to take the form of servanthood, and the way of nonviolent peacemaking is to prevail. Seeking to live in accordance with the vision of the coming reign of God's justice is to be the supreme concern of its existence. It is this enfleshed, embodied Jesus, uh, the very incarnation of God the Son, who walked among us. Uh, in the words of Howard Thurman, he also was the one who stood with those whose backs are against the wall, the disinherited, the disenfranchised. It was Jesus's uh, ministry of love and justice in his teachings and actions that culminated in his work on the cross um, that provides the basis for the kind of reconciliation and liberation that Christian tradition has affirmed. Jesus is the incarnated expression of God's attribute of divine justice and love, the embodiment of God's righteousness and love. Jesus is the one who sends the spirit along with the father, making it possible for people to become the righteousness or the justice of God and to be called to the ministry of reconciliation as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Again, as we seek to pursue shalom. The biblical understanding of peace points the way uh, uh, to the way that things should be, what is an inherently positive notion. Thus, when things are not as they should be, no amount of security or absence of war obtained through legal codes and enforcement will truly cultivate the kind of biblical peace that is required by Shalom. Instead, only the transformation of society into the way that things should be can achieve this. Given this theological understanding of God's peace, Christians um, uh, should not the Christian church be at the forefront of ensuring that things are the way that they should be. If the church does not do so and instead benefits from the lack of shalom, will we not be fundamentally impeding shalom and therefore 
by uh, impeding the witness, the embodied witness of Jesus. <clears throat> and so just in closing here, um, I just want to uh, highlight just a couple of takeaways. Uh, and again, many of you who are working in the field of healthcare uh, as professionals and trained in those spaces would uh, be able to develop uh, much more sophisticated takeaways uh, than these that are mentioned here. But when I think about this whole idea of pursuing shalom in an age of COVID-19 uh, and think about the context of this space, three things just really popped into my mind here that I want to share with you uh, in closing. Um, the first is this idea of just imagining uh, an expanded notion of what is necessary for health beyond that of what modern medicine uh, understands it uh, to be. Uh, there is a sense deeply rooted uh, within uh, many theologians' writings uh, and works, reflecting on scripture, thinking about embodied practices, uh, that the notion of health uh, is much more expansive um, than oftentimes is captured in our understandings of modern medicine. Uh, this is not to suggest in any way uh, that modern medicine should expand itself in these ways to uh, address all of these other issues that I've raised and highlighted here, uh, even though I think Augustine uh, and some of his writings seem to suggest that medicine certainly entails these issues. Uh, if nothing else, what it can do is put limits on us to recognize uh, that medicine can only do so much, that there are other things that are required to promote health uh, and human flourishing. Uh, second, Perhaps think about how financial incentives and economic models of healthcare resist preventive approaches to uh, medicine and healthcare uh, as an approach to uh, promoting overall health and well being. And then, lastly, here, uh, I think we should seek to embody Christian witness in our broader political and social life beyond our individual and institutional practice uh, of medicine, uh, reflecting on what does it mean uh, to bear witness. Uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ with this guiding vision of shalom and those of us who are drawn to various forms of liberation theology always asking the question liberation from what to what I think this vision of shalom uh, is a very worthy moral vision that is deeply informed by Christian tradition uh, that is pushing us to this vision of shalom so with that, I will stop. Uh, hopefully there's enough there to provoke some conversation uh, and discussion and further reflection together. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you very much for that. That you gave us a lot of really thoughtful things to think about. And I'm so glad we have some time for conversation. Uh, and we do wanna make this a time of conversation. Uh, we began this TMC seminar several years ago over lunch in a small conference room and the focus was really on being in conversation with each other. And we wanna to continue to do that even though we're distributed really across the world on this call. Um, what, what I'd ask you to do is if you have a question for Dr. Smith, uh, please use the uh, hand raise function in Zoom, which you can, uh, you can uh, see on the right hand of your screen. And uh, I will call on people in order of the way that the hands are raised. Uh, and uh, I just wanna, uh, ask the first question to give people a chance to think of questions. And then I think uh, Polly Hilsbeck will be our next uh, uh, questioner. Uh, but uh, Dr. Smith, I think you've given us a really compelling, I think, frame for thinking, A, about a broader vision of health and health in the context of Shalom, and then have begun to tie that into how we think about COVID-19. And I, I sometimes feel just a kind of 
despair that there is not that kind of pervasive discourse around COVID-19 in our country right now and even in the Christian world right now about what we owe to each other and about thinking about this broader context of health and shalom and our actions um, reflecting that. And it, it seems like in part we have just profound problems with trust, with lack of trust of uh, institutions and of people who are, um, who are giving recommendations. And in part that's lack of trust in the language of public health and the language of epidemiology and the language of, and the institutions of medical and public health authority. So I wonder, can you think of ways that not only Christians, but also those in these positions of authority in public health, like people who are making recommendations, could incorporate some of this way of thinking about shalom in the way that we talk about our health as a country, like as a way to try to kind of um, uh, bring that discourse into the larger conversations around COVID. And I'm asking because I don't see how to, how to do it. And I love your advice. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Kinghorn, for that monumental question, right? You know, and if I could uh, really answer that question with any uh, sense of proficiency and persuasiveness, I would probably be on every news media outlet, right? Uh, you know, every day, all day. Um, no, I... Uh, just, Which would be I a mean, good I thing, think, by the way. We, we would, no, we would no, like no, that no. actually. So, not, yeah, yeah. Not, not at all, right? Not, not at all. I, I run from those things uh, as, much as, I, as much as I can. But I mean, I think you're raising uh, just a very important point. I mean, you're highlighting just the situation that we find ourselves in uh, in our country just a lack of trust uh borderline um despair for a lot of folks uh a deep cynicism beginning to uh set into the hearts and minds of a a, a lot of people and this is where i think for me um i often challenge students to think about this question um a large apart from the larger broader kind of public health you know context right now but the question is for me, what work, if any, right, we may not do any, but what work, if any, do our theological categories or resources do for us in times like this, right? And what I often think about, uh, Dr. Kinghorn, is the fact that uh, there are a whole lot of people uh, in our country who claim to be um, uh, in some way connected to Christian tradition. Uh, and of course, we know that, uh, I mean, historically, it's always been the case, right, that uh, People are sometimes nominal, right, or cultural in, in their understanding of these kinds of issues. Uh, but I often wonder what it would be if our churches began to talk about these issues and think about these issues even more, recognizing that uh, questions of no love of neighbor and what it means to uphold the dignity and value of other human beings means being for others, right? What would it mean collectively if that large group of people uh, begin to think about what does it mean to be for others and not so much what does it mean to kind of galvanize uh, upon, you know, one's individual rights and uh, language and metaphors of circling the wagons, which are really problematic uh, in many ways, you know, in terms of thinking about these kinds of issues. Um, and what would it mean to embody uh, the kind of witness uh, or the faith of Jesus, right? I mean, I in terms of questions of faith in Jesus, but what does it mean to embody the faith of Jesus in the world in which we find ourselves, that we that we live, move, and being? And so I guess my uh, emphasis at this point, while not giving the larger prescription of how do we you know, generate trust, but what uh, can those who lay claim to Christian tradition, how can we have a very different take of what it means uh, to love neighbor and to pursue 
more just social relationships um, uh, and being the hands and feet of Jesus in a more concrete way. So I, I'll stop there, uh, uh, Dr. King Corning, acknowledging that uh, the thrust of your question was still uh, left uh, unanswered there. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks. Our next question is from Polly Hilsebeck. If you, and uh, if you're, when I call on you, if you could un, uh, show your screen and and then ask the question, and then uh, and then Dr. Smith will answer. Holly, are you, are you able to? Yes, yes. Wonderful, I just, great. I was reading your message there. Yes, thank you for today. Um, Dr. Smith, what is your take on uh, gender shalom vis-a-vis -vis health? Yes, very good. Thank you so much for raising that. And uh, that was something I should have emphasized. Uh, we think about the negative impact of COVID-19. Uh, it has, I think, while we do talk about other, let's say like racialized minorities, uh, certainly those who are uh, economically uh, disenfranchised uh, and empowered, uh, all of this is complicated even more when we raise questions of, of gender uh, on the table. Uh, women have, I think, uh, in my understanding and estimation and reflection on this and um, talking with others and seeing how it's played out in particular communities, uh, have been disproportionately hit um, um, in harder ways. And again, this is just a reflection of the way our social life has already been arranged, right? Uh, such that um, we see these um, a pathology right in our physical bodies uh, that reflect kind of pathology in the larger body politic in which we find ourselves. And so I do think that if we are talking about pursuing shalom justice, if we're not talking about gender justice all along the way at every level, uh, then I think we're going to have a significant problem uh, with achieving this kind of vision that I, that I was talking about here. And so, uh, you know, Polly, I do appreciate you raising that because I think that is extremely important. And especially as I try to emphasize this notion of like the incarnation of Jesus, which highlights the particularity of human life, right? So not in this abstract kind of, you know, generic human, you know, dignity, but the very uh, locus of our bodies is a site of knowledge production, right? And lived experience that if we don't attend to it, we're going to have serious problems. So uh, that was uh, uh, um, a lack of insight on my part, like highlighting that. So thank you for giving me the opportunity uh, to make sure that that is on the table in this larger idea or thinking about what it means to pursue shalom in the age of COVID-19. But uh, probably, did you want to maybe come back on that or or, uh, no, I just want to say thank you. I, my, I'm taking away uh, our bodies are the site of knowledge production. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. Sure, and that's not mine, right? Uh, many other Black feminist thinkers and womanist yeah. uh, theological ethicists have have really emphasized these these ideas and these notions. So I'm, yeah, but you I'm used in, it. You used yeah. it today. But I'm indebted in situ. So great. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much, Reverend Hilsebeck. Uh, uh, just as a reminder, if you wanna ask a question, you can go to the participants tab and at the bottom of my screen, I see a little raised, raised hand that you can use to raise your hand if you want to ask a question. Um, since I don't see any other raised hands right now, uh, Dr. Smith, I wanna, I wanna come back and just kind of make it practical with regard to how this hits the ground of the COVID pandemic. So 
as the last question was indicating, I mean, COVID seems to be both a great unveiler and revealer and also a multiplier of disparities. Like it's both unveiled and revealed disparities in our society and also in my mind, every, every um, form of injustice and disparity that exists has been in some way made worse by in and through the COVID pandemic. And, and I think that's something that Christians need to take account of. So the, the trying to get to the ground of everyone here, like the things that are most often the sites of contention for whatever reason in our world right now are uh, with regard to COVID are vaccines and masks. And so we see this all the time in headlines and we see this, you know, some locally, but especially in other places. Um, so if you were going to kind of apply this the question of shalom ethics to thinking about how churches, for example, might talk about vaccines in their midst and masks, masks in their midst, like how would, how would you frame that kind of argument? Like specifically, like why we either should or shouldn't, you know, take vaccines or either should or shouldn't. Uh, mask, you know, in various settings. Yeah, you know, my, um, so uh, several ways I would frame it. I mean, the uh, kind of the nuts and bolts would really be, you know, uh, what I tried to emphasize uh, over this last year and a half is to think seriously about what it means to um, love neighbor, right? And especially rooting it in this idea of the great command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So all of this means something, right, for us. We think about the way the parable of the Good Samaritan perhaps fleshes out the idea of what neighbor love looks like. And it is a costly uh, uh, type of love. Uh, it is a uh, love that requires uh, that we put ourselves perhaps in harm's way, if you think about the details of that parable. It is, I think, a kind of love uh, that has its eye to notions of restorative justice. And so I've been really influenced by Christopher Marshall's work, you know, on this at the end, uh, just about uh, paying the innkeeper uh, if there's any other debt that's incurred because the uh, Samaritan who had, uh, or the, this Jewish person who has fallen on the road to Jericho could have incurred uh, debt at the end and still would have been worse off uh, even after all of that, right? So these notions of restorative justice and really looking at the very love of God and how the love of God is extended in justice in the world and righteousness in the world. And if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, even as we are to love God, right? That there is this, this, this giving type of relationship. And so when we think about notions of vaccines and wearing masks, why not think of this in terms of really loving our neighbors Maybe it is an inconvenience in some ways uh, for some people to wear a mask. Uh, yes, maybe we do have some fears or some concerns about vaccinations and so on and so forth. Uh, but the question is, can we begin to deal with our fears and maybe overcome our fears to better embody what it means to uh, love our neighbor? And so that's one of the ways I I've, I've tried to really emphasize this idea of what it means to really live the Christian life as being for others. If we look at Jesus as a model, we think about, you know, Jesus' work uh, on the cross. However, that's understood. I know there's a lot of theological debate there, but one of the things we do recognize is that the arms were open wide uh, and that arm, those arms open wide has symbolic, you know, meaning obviously. But then if we think about it in terms of what we know through the eyes of faith, the, what was happening in terms of redemption, that was kind of an invitation that was opening to embrace others. But when you 
extend your arms to embrace others, you leave yourself open for kind of a, a spear to be thrust uh, in one side. So there's a vulnerability there uh, that comes with living the life of faith. But I think that's no less required for those uh, of us who want to lay claim uh, to this Jesus tradition. And then the other thing is just the theology of creation, just helping people to see uh, that God has given us some good gifts and God has given people the ability to to generate the resources from this earth to uh, to create uh, medicines and things like vaccines uh, to help promote human flourishing and to mitigate uh, the impact of relational brokenness in this world. So that's what I've tried to do, Dr. Kinghorn, in a um, uh, in the small circles uh, that I'm in, especially for those who uh, lean into Christian tradition. Anyway, yeah, thank you. Thanks. Next question is from Brett McCarty. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for this. Um, I uh, especially appreciated your invocation of Karl Barth. That was, I will remember that you did that uh, and, and remind you of it. Yes. Um, uh, I guess my, uh, Warren, uh, Dr. Kinghorn was already trying to get you to say something to get yourself in trouble, but I wonder to press it a little bit further. Um, like Shalom is a lovely moving concept and robust concept. And I love the way you've laid it out. But, you know, from a distance, it might be like, you know, if Jesus was embodying the shalom of God, you know, what, what, that sounds nice. Like, why would he get killed? Or, you know, if the way that MLK was pushing the work of shalom in his work, like, why would that get him assassinated? So um, what are some of the kind of prophetic edges of calling for shalom today? And how, how do you see that playing out in a way? Because it's so winsome, and I'm, I'm all on board, but uh, um, how? What what's that edge look like, and how can we be prepared for it? Yeah, uh, thank thanks for that, Brett. I mean, the one thing that I don't want to try to communicate when talking about shalom, or even talking about this notion of of justice is what love looks like in public, is a kind of uh, mere sentimentalism, uh, or just this kind of easy, uh, or just trying to be nice or something along that line. Far from it, right? Uh, the reality is, is that when we start talking about this kind of stuff, this is hard because the reality is, is that we do have uh, political enemies, right? We do have people who wish certain groups of people no good, right? We do have issues of extreme economic injustice. We do have real issues of sexism. We do have racial injustice with the intersection of not only race uh, and gender economics, but uh, all all these other things that are actually killing people, right? Uh, and so when I talk about this notion of that uh, shalom justice requires a principle of redress, right? Uh, that means that there is a reckoning that needs to happen with respect to injustice, uh, that we have to begin to think about how we restructure our social arrangements. Uh, yes, as King said, we need a revolution of values, right, in many respects, and there are other parts of our life where we need uh, revolution as, as well, right? Uh, again, people debate how these kind of things play out, so I think the prophetic edge, uh, at least from the, the, the resource that I would want to draw from, is being able to stand in a and to call out, especially, I would just say, uh, first focusing in on uh, the uh, certain expressions of American Christianity. Uh, American Christianity has a king-sized problem on its hand because it has not done a good job of 
uh, clearly extracting itself from uh, various ac uh, aspects of white supremacy or kind of American slavehold religion that has been part of the uh, of certain expressions of American Christianity. Now, again, that's just data, right? I mean, we're not necessarily like debating this or arguing about this. That that's data, right? We can find chapter and verse to see that. The challenge that we have now is that because those things have not been torn apart in the ways that they should be, that any challenge of racial uh, racial injustice or dealing with white supremacy as it is showing itself uh, in uh, certain American expressions of Christianity and sexism often is seen on the part of some as a very challenge to the Christian faith itself, right? Uh, and that is an extreme problem. And then there's, there's no accident, right? Why we see this divide, right? Where we see um, uh, along political lines, right? I mean, we've just got to put that on the table uh, as well. Uh, in terms of partisan lines, let me put it that way, because I believe that all of the theological life is going to be political in the broadest sense of the term, uh, in terms of Aristotelian's, uh, Aristotelian sense, right, political. Uh, but in terms of partisanship, uh, this is a serious issue. And so, yeah, so I think the prophetic edges uh, would be being able to name or to see, to identify, name, and then push uh, the people of God, if they are truly the people of God, to return back uh, to the heart of the Jesus tradition. Uh, and Jesus was, I think, not a chaplain of the empire, but he was a prophet of resistance. And if we lose that Jesus, then God help us. Thank you. That's, that's moving and it seems exactly right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Smith. I'm not quite sure what I have to say after that, but thank you for, uh, for that just now. Uh, uh, Polly, did you want to Add into that. Can you can you unmute? Okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your comments make me think about the what would Jesus do movement and people wearing the bracelets. What would Jesus do, and how that stops with actual concrete, what Jesus would do. Um, where, where is that, what would Jesus do movement now? Um, yeah, you know, uh, that's, that's a great question in terms of like where it is. Uh, one of the things that I have um, been moved by are others who have, try to redirect our gaze to the faith of Jesus, right? Oftentimes in our circles, we like to talk about faith in Jesus, right? But what about the faith of Jesus, right? Mm. Uh, how Jesus um, stood with those whose backs are against the wall, um, how Jesus navigated the world in which we find ourselves, and again, uh, kind of reorienting our gaze, right, on this, um, truly prophetic, I think, figure. So in terms of, I think for me, uh, trying to uh, answer the question, where is the, you know, what would Jesus do, you know, kind of, you know, movement uh, is just to encourage, you know, those of us who take uh, Jesus seriously is to try to embody in our own lives, our own communities, uh, this faith uh, of Jesus uh, as we go forward. Um, and I'll say this in closing, because I know that our time is just about gone here, but um, 
you know, there are certain days uh, of the week uh, where I uh, hope, you know, continues to diminish uh, a little bit. Uh, but yet I do recognize the fact that um, uh, we can't talk about questions of shalom justice uh, without some corresponding sense of hope that goes along with it. Hope is just this idea of saying uh, that things can be better than what they are. And even if I don't see the way forward, I'm going to work uh, in that direction, continue to bear witness, hoping right, uh, that things will change. If people can change and institutions can change, then we can still uh, uh, have hope uh, in that regard. So let me stop there. I thought I saw one more hand and I wanna be sensitive of time, but also to the, to the last hand there, I think it was uh, uh, Deborah Williams. All right, thank you, uh, Dr. Smith, for this presentation. It was absolutely, um, it caused me to have a lot of reflection and I'm thinking about um, Brent's um, question. And I wanna know, as we think about um, Shalom as justice and you know this um, notion of trust, right? And building trust and thinking about um, the ministry of Jesus, what does it cost us to begin to see ourselves in our neighbor, right? Um, and just to be able to identify our neighbor, what is the what practice um, has to happen in order for that level of shalom justice to um, take place? If we think about Jesus coming out of the wilderness and saying and repeating or um, reading Isaiah sixty-one, right? and being able to see ourselves from that perspective in our neighbor and understand that shalom justice kind of, I wanna say it feels like that, that, that is the foundation of it. And then thinking about what as a result, um, is it like Matthew 25, where we have the um, parable of the, the sheep and the goats, when did you see me? Right. Um, so how do we incorporate those pieces as we begin to um, practice the shalom justice? Right. Yeah. And and thank you so much for that, for that question. And I, I guess I have to give the 30 second uh, answer. So Dr. Kingcorn won't be too upset with me here. Uh, and let me just uh, take this this particular uh, uh, approach here uh, for me. And uh, I'm not trying to suggest by any means any of this is easy. Uh, and. Uh, I have gone through many days of existential crises uh, because I know that I have failed uh, to engage in um, love of enemy, right? In the way that Jesus actually uh, instructs those who want to lay claim to him. And so where I go back to all of this is grace. For me, the idea of grace is the foundational springboard is, is theological, I'm unapologetically and unashamedly, or it's just theological, right? That all of social justice work, I think, has to start from this notion of grace, that grace is God's power in us and also empowers us for the work so that as we recognize that uh, while we were apart from God, broken in relationship, that God broke into our lives, right? That while the rest of creation was in broken relationship, God intervened to redeem and to transform. And if I am waiting on others to be transformed before I embrace them as the other, then I have forgotten the very fundamental ground of that which made me or us as a Christian community who we are or who I am 
as individual. So for me, grace is a springboard for everything else. Go back, think about the grace of the gospel in our own lives, and then let that deeply inform and permeate all the rest of our work towards shalom justice. And my sister, Deborah, that's the best I can do. And that is a that is a great last word. Uh, thank you, Dr. Smith. Uh, we're uh, at our a little bit after one o'clock. Uh, uh, Dr. Smith, I want to thank you for your talk. You've, you've opened up a lot that actually on one level seems kind of simple, but on the other hand is incredibly hard and complex. And I've had some people chat in the chat ask me, how can we get our churches talking about this when so many churches just try to avoid talking about anything that's controversial? And I think you've given us some really kind of good um, kind of groundwork to be able to kind of introduce some of these discussions in church and other contexts. Uh, I want to just say thank you to Dr. Smith. We can give our kind of virtual uh, applause uh, to thank you for joining us today. And want to invite all of you on the call to join us again for our second TMC seminar of the year or of the semester on September 17th when uh, Dr. Brian Volk will be here uh, speaking with us on health, wholeness, and humanity, the stewardship of creation as if matter mattered. Uh, if you wonder what that's going to be about, please join us on September 17th. Again, thanks to Dr. Smith. Uh, thanks to all of you uh, for being here and uh, blessings on this uh, Labor Day weekend and uh, to all of you in your ongoing work. Take care. Thanks. Mm -hmm.